Few things get my heart rate up quite as fast as the concerned charge nurse who taps me on the shoulder and says, Anton, EMS just brought a guy into recess bed two with a massive GI bleed who looks pre-arrest. We need you now. There's no doubt about it. The GI bleed can be an ominous presentation. That's because it fulfills the holy trinity of one, it can be deadly, two, it can be sneaky, and three, we're not the only ones who definitively manage them. The ED doc's management of the GI bleed is vitally important. Now on the show today, we've got the mighty return of two well-known EM educators who shared their best case ever stories with us on EM cases in the past. Dr. Anand Swami Nathan, otherwise known as Swami, you've probably seen or heard his name before on MRAP, Core EM, Key Notable, Rebel EM, Allium, All NYC EM, the Teaching Institute, the list goes on and on. The incredible speaker, an EM educator from New York City. Welcome back to the show, Swami. It's great to be here, Anton. Uh, Really great to talk about this topic. One of my favorite topics to discuss. Great. And from San Antonio, Texas, the creator, founder, and editor-in-chief of the fantastic blog and podcast Rebel EM, as well as the co-founder of the Teaching Institute, a dynamic speaker, amazing educator, double certified in EM and internal medicine, the one, the only, the rebel himself, Dr. Salim Rizay. It's great to have you back on the show, guys. Thanks for having me, Anton. I just, you know, for the record... Swami, you kind of sound like the prostitute of foam with all those projects you got going on. No, no. Prostitutes get paid. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, with that in mind, what are we going to learn on this episode, guys? We figured that we were going to dive really deep into GI bleed, the upper, the lower, all of the ins and outs. We're going to get really detailed on the evidence that tells us what to do. But let's be honest, Anton. The sicker the patient, the less the evidence can guide us, right? So we're going to talk a lot about our experiences, what we do, what the expert recommendations are, because sometimes that's the best that you have. Yeah, I mean, we're going to cover everything from the value of fecal occult blood. We'll talk about, you know, that massive GI bleed, the first two, five, 10, 60 minutes, what actions we need to take when we're staring down the barrel of that massive GI bleed. You know, we'll cover all the evidence-based recommendations for for different medications you can use. And as a special bonus, we're actually going to have Dr. Jeannie Callum, who you might remember from the IV Iron podcast. She's one of the world authorities on transfusion medicine, and she's going to give us her take on how we can use massive transfusion protocols in patients with GI bleeds. So without further ado, let's dive into the murky waters of the emergency management of GI bleeding. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. All right, so let's jump right into the first case. A 73-year-old man with a history of hypertension and ischemic heart disease, whose three months post-cardiac stent presents to your ED with 24 hours of intermittent bright red blood per rectum with clots. He's on a beta blocker, ASA, and clopidogrel. On exam, he's diaphoretic but alert. His supine heart rate is 90, blood pressure 105, and his sitting vitals are a heart rate of 108 and a blood pressure of 92 on 50. 
The remainder of the exam is unremarkable, except for maroon-colored stool on rectal exam. So, Dr. Swaminathan, what are your general thoughts on the case so far? Like, are you worried? Not worried? What are you thinking? I'm definitely worried, Anton. I think we're all worried. I I think a little bit of palpitations are already occurring on my part, whether the patient's feeling that or not. In general, if the patient is sweating, you should probably be sweating too. So I'm very concerned. There's a lot of high-risk features here. You know, if you go down that little bit of presentation, first of all, you've got a patient who's on aspirin and clopidogrel. So he's got two antiplatelet agents on board, which are trying their damned hardest to stop him from clotting off and stopping that bleeding. So we've got some things working against us. He's also on a beta blocker. Now, he's already a little tachycardic, right? He's 91 on presentation, 108 when he sits up. With a beta blocker on board, that's actually masking his tachycardia. So he's probably much more tachycardic than that uh, heart rate would really allude to. Now, on top of all of that, this guy's got known coronary artery disease, and now he's got a GI bleed. And we know the literature is very clear on this. Patients with multiple comorbidities who come in with a GI bleed have a higher mortality. And that's not a surprising thing to say, Anton. We know that. When a patient comes in with any problem and they have a bunch of other comorbidities, they're going to do worse. They're going to have a worse chance of having a good outcome. But we do have some literature that shows that specifically CAD is one of those high-risk features. And a lot of that is probably because they have less reserve. And on top of that, they've got these other agents on board that are directly managing that CAD, but they don't take into account that something else could happen. Now, and I do want to mention a little bit about orthostatics. You mentioned it. You know this is one of my pet peeves. So I got to say the numbers don't matter here. All that matters is the patient's symptoms. Symptoms trump numbers. So if this guy sits up and says, oh my God, I think I'm going to pass out, you don't even have to get numbers on that guy. It doesn't matter what those numbers are. And the reason that I make a big deal about it is because sometimes those numbers can mislead you. So about 50% of patients who are volume depleted will not have orthostatic vital signs in spite of having orthostatic symptoms. So just worry about the symptoms and you're going to be doing fine. So the bottom line, the question you asked me, am I worried? Oh, yeah, I'm worried, and I'm going to already start rallying some resources to this patient's bedside. Yeah, I totally agree about uh, the orthostatics and to go symptomatically. I mean, if you are going to use any numbers, I I prefer the the shock index uh, that we use in trauma patients. Uh, It's been shown to be helpful in patients with sepsis. You know, so the shock index is the heart rate divided by the systolic blood pressure. It's generally much more useful for predicting badness than orthostatic vitals for sure. Um, And although, as you said, this patient is on a beta blocker, uh, you might actually underestimate the severity of shock in his case. I think that's the trickiest thing, Anton. We see this all the time, especially since we see more older trauma than younger trauma now in a lot of centers. That beta blocker is going to mask their shock. It's going to mask that tachycardia. So just keep it in mind when you're seeing these patients. All right. So, you know, we've got a little bit of history here, but uh, we haven't really you know, we're going to be resuscitating this patient. But in terms of the history with GI bleeders in general, and in this case, what else are you going to really be looking for on history in a patient who presents with a GI bleed? Yeah. And this is, you have to get very specific with patients about this because a lot of them will come in and just say, I'm bleeding. And so, well, what do you mean by your bleeding? Is it black? Is it 
bright red? Is it maroon? What's the amount? Is it streaked on the sides? Is it mixed in? Is there clots with it? Is there not clots with it? Is it filling the bowl? Is it only when you wipe? I mean, it's so nuanced. I know we're talking about bowel movements here, but I mean, you have to be very specific with these patients. You might want to start asking about other symptoms, like are they having abdominal pain? Is there diarrhea associated with this or has there been? Has this happened in the past? You start thinking about things like inflammatory, ischemic, or infectious type colitis. How are their bowel movements altered with this episode? Do they have iron deficiency anemia? Any unexplained weight loss? Because then you start thinking about things like colorectal cancer. Again, depending on their age, this patient's in his 70s, so definitely something that's higher up on the list. And then you want to start asking about maybe some of the upper GI symptoms. Do they have previous events of GI bleeding, abdominal or vascular surgeries, peptic ulcer disease, inflammatory bowel disease, abdominal pelvic radiation therapy? And then another thing that I think we often forget to ask our patients is, are you taking anything over the counter? Are you taking any type of NSAIDs? I know this specific patient, we said he's already on aspirin and clopidogrel, but are they taking things like naproxen, Aleve? Motrin, ibuprofen, um, you name it on the list of NSAIDs, because that may point you toward gastritis, peptic ulcer disease, any history of H. pylori, which is also a risk factor for upper uh, GI bleed. And then like Swami mentioned, the comorbidities are so important to ask about, because oftentimes these patients, their chronic problems are also decompensated on top of the fact that they're having a GI bleed. They're not optimized. And so that's a higher prognostic factor for their mortality. So coexisting cardiopulmonary disease, renal disease, hepatic conditions, these also require attention at the same time while we're dealing with this bleed. Because these patients, they're already sick. This guy is sick. He's hypotensive. He's tachycardic. I'm nervous about this patient. He's got a lot of things going against him here right off the bat. All right. So before we get into how we're going to resuscitate this patient, one thing we learned in medical school was that bright red blood per rectum was a lower GI bleed and Molina or coffee ground emesis was an upper GI bleed. But I've since learned that it's not quite that simple. Uh, so Dr. Swaminathan, how do you distinguish between an upper versus lower GI bleed clinically? I mean, it, it kind of sounds simple, but sometimes it's not as clear as we might think. It's pretty important, Anton, in terms of management of what interventions we're going to apply and to a certain degree of which of our consultants we're going to involve. And it is tricky. I agree with you. I think what we need to start with is, is the patient sick or not sick, because that's the first division point. And I'll tell you, if you decide the patient is sick, then it doesn't matter whether it's upper or lower. You're pretty much going to apply the same management. And in general, we assume that it's an upper GI bleed first. And then I've got to work my way back to, no, 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 this is a lower GI bleed. And of course, we assume sick first and then work our way back to not sick. And if we do that, our patients are probably going to have a better outcome. So I start with, are they sick or not sick? Now, obviously, this guy is sick. So if it's they're sick, and there's bleeding, I assume it's an upper GI bleed, and I apply those interventions that apply to that. Now, if the patient is not sick, I have time to consider the other diagnoses, take in some other information that can help and guide where I think the blood is coming from, and then what interventions I'm going to apply. So the sick patient, resuscitate aggressively, assume it's an upper GI bleed, and get those consultants involved. Now, with the not sick patient, there are some things that can help you. If they tell you they've had any hematemesis, that's an upper GI bleed. We all agree on that, right? Hematemesis is not coming from the colon. That would be a really bad GI bleed, lower GI bleed with an obstruction, I guess. So hematemesis at any point, we assume that's an upper GI bleed. 
if they've got bright red blood per rectum with clots, that's almost always going to be a lower GI bleed. The exception, of course, is that if they have a very, very brisk upper GI bleed, they can pour out bright red blood per rectum. But Anton, I think we've seen those patients. They are not the not sick patients. These are sick patients. They look unstable. They look terrible. So I don't think you're going to miss that one. You're going to know that that patient is sick, and then you're going to assume that, oh, that bright red blood, maybe that is from an upper source. The lower GI bleed can manifest with melana, but I'll tell you, I know that that's written about. I've never actually seen it. So I guess it could happen, but I've not seen that happen. Now, when you have melana, again, that suggests the upper GI source, and the sensitivity on that's pretty good. We're talking about an 80% sensitivity, a likelihood ratio of around six. So it's not quite the 10 likelihood ratio that we like, but that's a pretty good indicator. So now the other things that we can look at, and this is going to take some more time. So this is where we've decided the patient isn't sick. We're getting some supporting information on that patient, some blood work. BUN to creatinine ratio is often touted as something that can help us. If that BUN to creatinine ratio is greater than 30 to 1, that suggests an upper GI source. And I'll tell you, I don't really completely understand why that is. We were told for some time that that's because they've got blood in the GI tract, it's getting digested, and then because of that, their BUN creatinine go up. But I know that there are some studies on healthy volunteers where they swallowed their own blood. And I don't want to talk about exactly how they got those volunteers. I'm sure they were medical students or military recruits because nobody else would ever have done this. And they found that their BUN and creatinine ratios didn't really go up. So probably this has to do with the fact that they are sick, they have blood in their system, and they're volume depleted more than anything else. Now, we do have one systematic review that found that when the BUN creatinine ratio is over 30, that's 93% specific for an upper GI bleed with a positive likelihood ratio of seven and a half. Again, those are pretty good numbers. That's something that you can kind of rest your hat on. But again, when those patients have that BUN creatinine ratio like that, they usually do look a little sick. You don't usually get too surprised on those patients. The other factors, just to summarize those things that we're looking for, is the black stool color. And, you know, there's a difference between dark brown and black. Once you've seen black stool, you won't forget it. And remember, when I was a junior resident, I was taught, take that stool that's on your finger when you do the digital rectal examination and put it on a piece of white paper. That's how you can tell something is black as opposed to just dark brown. Again, we're looking at that BUN to creatinine ratio. And then the last one is age. Patients who are younger than 50 years of age who come in with a GI bleed, they are more likely to have an upper GI source of that bleeding as opposed to a lower GI bleeding source. Uh, this is, doesn't have the best positive likelihood ratio. It doesn't have the best sensitivity and specificity, but it's something else to add. So while you're going through all of these things and you're trying to push yourself in the direction of lower or upper GI bleed, these three factors can all be taken into account. The color of the stool, the BUN to creatinine ratio, and then lastly, that age. All right. I got it. So three considerations, sick or not sick, BUN to creatinine ratio and age. So first, if they're sick, you assume it's an upper GI bleed and treat accordingly. If they're not sick, but have hematemesis, then it's probably an upper GI source. Or if they have bright red blood per rectum with clots, then it's almost for sure a lower GI. And next, the BUN and creatinine ratio, if that's greater than 30, then it's probably an upper GI source. And that's got a pretty damn good likelihood ratio. Um, and then lastly, if they're under 50, that makes it much more likely that it's an upper GI source as well. Exactly. And that first point, Anton, is key that if they're sick, you assume it's upper because the treatments that you apply for the upper, they'll help for the lower GI bleed too. 
All right. You had mentioned uh, putting the stool on a piece of paper to see if it's truly got that black tarry appearance. I want to talk a little bit about fecal occult blood testing for a moment. You know, some docs claim that they're pretty useless, the fecal occult blood tests, while other docs kind of use them for every patient who presents weak and dizzy with not an obvious cause. So, you know, the patient obviously here has a GI bleed that we've been talking about, but in some patients, it's not so obvious. And sometimes we get fooled by hemoptysis or epistaxis, thinking that it, it might be a, a GI bleed. So let's say you've got a weak and dizzy patient who's on a blood thinner and you want to rule out a GI bleed as a cause for their presentation. One of the things we've done to help us in this kind of scenario is to do a rectal exam and look for stool for occult blood. So, Dr. Rizé, what do you need to know about the value of fecal occult blood in determining whether a patient actually has a GI bleed in the first place? Yeah, I mean, you could do almost two one-hour lectures just on fecal occult blood testing just to to start off. It's, it's just, I mean, it's so silly. I mean, please don't, please, please don't. <laughs> <yeah>. do that. <laughs> that's that's actually the next Rebel Cast where we're going to talk about. I'm just kidding. Um, so, for detection of lower GI bleeds, the sensitivity is only about. 25%. I mean, it's just under that. And the specificity is pretty good, almost 90%. The positive likelihood ratio, again, it's okay, about just over two. Negative likelihood ratio of 0.85. And the accuracy is about 73, 74%, something in that range. Now, the thing to remember here, and I think this is where it's really important to talk about this test, is false positives and false negatives. So false positives you know, when we do this, there's a lot of things that can make this test look positive when it's actually not. So foods such as red meat that already have blood in it, broccoli, turnips, cauliflower, apples, oranges, mushrooms, horseradish. And there are some drugs too, such as like colchicine and other oxidizing drugs like iodine and boric acid. I hope nobody's drinking a bunch of boric acid, but this can actually trigger the same chemical reaction and make the test appear positive even in the absence of human blood. Now, false negatives. Something here to remember is vitamin C. So things that are adding that extra hydrogen ion, and I don't want to get too, too nerdy here, but basically iron comes in the ferrous and the ferric state. So ferrous being the two plus, ferric being the three plus. When people take things like vitamin C, it adds that extra hydrogen ion and makes the iron go from ferrous to ferric. And this can actually prevent the change that you would see on a guaiac card. So people who live in a very like acidic stomach environment for upper GI bleeds may falsely be negative. Now, Anton, don't forget patients who also take iron or things like bismuth or even black foods like black licorice will likely have stool that looks like melana. So in the United States, it's Pepto-Bismol is what we call it. I don't know if it's called the same thing up in Canada, but that can all actually make blood look melanotic. But for those of us who've seen true melana, it's not just what it looks like, like Swami was saying. It's also what it smells like. Once you've smelled melana, you know what it is that you're looking for. All right. So the bottom line then with fecal occult blood testing is that the specificity is pretty good, but the sensitivity really does suck. So if you get a positive test, assuming the patient's not on colchicine, that might tip you over the threshold of suspecting a GI bleed. But if it's negative, especially if the patient's taking vitamin C, 
that's pretty much useless. That's exactly right. It's very specific. It's not so sensitive. Okay. All right. So that's fecal occult blood. What about what about serum blood tests? Sometimes uh, we're kind of rushing through and ordering a bunch of tests when we have someone with a GI bleed, but uh, there's some blood tests that are really important that we that we shouldn't miss to order initially uh, and then follow over time. Uh, what what blood tests besides you know the usual hemoglobin, platelets, INR, PTT, that kind of stuff? What kind of blood tests do we do we have to be careful not to miss initially when we're presented with these GI bleeders? Yeah, you know, I want to add one thing about that hemoglobin because you have to remember sometimes when these people have brisk bleeds, they may not have equilibrated yet on their labs. And so a follow-up hemoglobin, maybe an hour or two later, and I know we're talking about the initial resuscitation here, is just something important to remember, um, is that whatever your initial hemoglobin is may not be actually truly what they have circulating in some people who have the brisk bleed. But other things you want to consider are cross and type. So if the patient's really sick, these patients are probably going to require blood transfusion. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit later. I think also getting liver function tests or liver enzymes is also important because, you know, patients who are cirrhotic, for example, or who have liver disease is a whole nother confounder that, again, we'll talk about a little bit later on. And even in your rock solid stable patients, look, at any moment, these patients could break open and just start pouring out blood. And we've all had that patient. And it is it is very, very stressful when that starts happening. So I would even send a a type and screen test just in case they get worse because it's not like you can just put your finger on it and block the bleed. And then finally, Anton, don't forget about fibrinogen in your really, really sick patients in case they require like a a massive transfusion protocol because you can follow that value. Um, And it's not a test that we often order or is in a lot of our order sets um, when we're initially taking care of these patients. All right. So the bottom line there with the blood tests is just think that these patients, even if they're not bleeding like stink in front of you, that they may start bleeding like crazy any minute. And so have a low threshold to order up all your coagulation studies, cross and type, because a lot of these patients may need a transfusion. This patient, as we've been talking, likely has a lower GI bleed since they've got bright red blood per rectum with clots. Uh, Let's talk about the differential diagnosis. Dr. Swaminathan, you know, the specific diagnosis probably won't change what we do in the first hour of management, but it may be very important in deciding whether to image the patient's belly or not, and it'll be important in terms of uh, endoscopy and the definitive management. What are the top three or four most common causes of lower GI bleed that we should be aware of? Yeah, so this is obviously important to think about and differentiate. Now, the number one cause in terms of what's most common is diverticulosis. That's about 30 to 65% of cases. So if you just guessed, oh, this bleed's probably coming from diverticulosis, you're mostly going to be right. Now, there are obviously much more benign things like hemorrhoids, colorectal polyps, or neoplasms. Those are both in the 5 to 15 to 20% range. The other one, though, that we have to think about, we don't always think about, and is the one that actually does require imaging, is ischemic colitis. You know, if the patient has diverticulosis, hemorrhoids, polyps, I don't need a CT scan. A CT scan is not going to help those patients in differentiating. Those patients need a scope, or maybe they need just a lower scope, depending on what you think is going on. 
but the ischemic colitis patient can benefit from a CT scan with contrast, but not your general abdomen pelvis CT. You need to ask them for exactly what you're looking for, right? If you're worried that this patient has an arterial clot or they have a venous clot, you need to tell your radiologist that because it's going to be a different protocol for how that CT is done. Those patients who have the acute arterial or the acute venous clot, those are much different in terms of management. So those are the patients where imaging can be helpful. The rest of these patients, you don't really need imaging. You just need to kind of get a good history, a good physical, you know, make sure when you do your rectal exam, you're looking back there for hemorrhoids. You might even see a little polyp that pokes out, but most of these things you're not going to find yourself and it's going to be your consultant that helps you to find that. All right. So, so far we've talked about taking a good history, the differential diagnosis, some tests that you're going to order initially. Let's get back to the case and start talking about how you're going to resuscitate this patient. So we've got our 73-year-old man. He's three months post-cardiac stent. Uh, He's got bright red blood per rectum with clots and orthostatic changes. First, let's talk about fluids. So how much fluid are you going to start with with this patient? So Anton, would it be okay if I answer none? None fluids? Is that is that an appropriate response? Uh, it, it's appropriate, although it's not really English. <laughs> <laughs> None it's not really fluids. English, and it's probably, it's probably not realistic, right? It's probably not realistic in every setting. The way I look at this is that the patient is bleeding blood. In fact, they're bleeding whole blood, not crystalloid. So we shouldn't be giving them crystalloid to refill the tank when blood is what's being lost. We should be giving blood. That makes a lot more sense. If the patient's hypotensive, you give them blood because that's what they lost. But Again, it's not always realistic. It's not always pragmatic. There are some settings where you don't have blood available. So if you are taking care of this patient pre-hospital, there's not a lot of ambulances that are stocked with whole blood or any kind of blood product. So you're probably going to have to give them some fluids, and your goal should be just to maintain a decent map, somewhere around 60 to 65 millimeters of mercury. We're not trying to push these people to super normal blood pressures or even necessarily into the normal range. We just want them kind of not tanking. So I would say 60 to 65 for a map would be pretty reasonable unless you had information telling you that, you know, this patient usually lives with a pressure of 180 over 100. That's their baseline blood pressure, in which case maybe you want to push that a little bit higher. But as soon as you get blood, as soon as you're in a place where you have blood available, you should be giving them blood. Yeah, I think we can borrow a lot from the trauma literature in this respect because there's not a ton of GI-specific literature to guide us. But I think suffice to say that excessive volume resuscitation with fluids is a definite no-no and that despite the lack of clear evidence for GI bleeders in particular, I think a reasonable approach would be to give them just enough crystalloids so that they're perfusing their vital organs and really only as a bridge to giving blood. Um, and depending on where you work, you can get that blood a bit faster or, or slower. Um, you know, We'll talk in more detail about massive transfusion and other blood products uh, with Jeannie Callum a bit later in the podcast. Uh, but just to foreshadow a bit, It turns out that most patients actually require just red cell transfusion and uh, don't really require the massive transfusion protocol all that often, um, that most patients will stabilize just after a few packed red cells. I just want to try and zero in a little bit on when you're, when in the patients who you're not sure are that sick or not, when you would transfuse them. We talked about how the hemoglobin takes time to catch up. 
that your initial hemoglobin might not be reflective of the severity of the bleed, but a hemoglobin a few hours later would probably be more reflective. Do you wait for that hemoglobin? What kind of things are going through your mind in terms of indications for giving a transfusion in the first place? There's basically no guidelines that, that guide us here. There's no specific hemoglobin cutoff that that tells you. I, I think we're going to keep saying this throughout this podcast is this has to be tailored to the patient. Are they sick? Are they not sick? I mean, I, I really think that is a huge dichotomy in taking care of these patients and making a lot of these decisions. In a patient who's diaphoretic, hypotensive, tachycardic, so basically hemodynamically unstable, I don't care what their hemoglobin comes back. Whatever they've bled out, they need it replaced. Now, the other thing to remember is that transfusion alone is not a benign procedure. There are complications associated with transfusions, and so this is not something we should take lightly. But again, you have to tailor this to the patient. Other things to think about is how brisk is the bleed? Is it maroon colored? Is it bright red? Or is it melanotic? Because how fast the bleeding is going on may also tailor this a little bit. The other thing is not just what hemoglobin are you going to transfuse at Anton, but I don't know how it is at y'all's shops, but at my shop, sometimes it can take up to an hour to get blood down. And so is this somebody that I'm going to start thinking about crash O negative blood coming down like I would for a trauma patient? Again, these decisions are made based on sick, not sick. So Anton, if you're talking about that patient that doesn't look so sick, that isn't hypotensive, that isn't tachycardic, but you're still concerned because they give you a good story for a GI bleed, how do you know who needs that blood early and who doesn't? We often rely on the hemoglobin. Salim talked about some of the weaknesses of that because sometimes that hemoglobin hasn't dropped yet, even though it is going to. And we do have some thresholds that people talk about. If the hemoglobin is below 7 or 70 for you guys, that's kind of a, a hard threshold to say you probably need to give blood. But some of the other things that we should look at is if the hemoglobin's low, but maybe not that low, but we think it's trending down. So just by looking at the patient, looking at how much blood they report, that might be enough for me to say, I understand that we're not at that threshold yet but I'm concerned that we're going to get under that. It's kind of the way that we predict if a patient's going to become neutropenic, even though they aren't right now. So those are things that we want to look at. On top of that, the symptoms that the patient exhibits might be enough of a tip-off. So the patient says, when I stand up, I feel like I'm going to pass out. Even if their hemoglobin comes back a little bit above that threshold, I'm probably going to start a transfusion on them. And then with patients with these underlying serious comorbidities, things like coronary artery disease, for instance, I have a little bit of a lower threshold to transfuse them. When I say lower threshold, I don't mean a lower number. I mean, I am more willing to transfuse them at a little bit of a higher hemoglobin level. The other thing I would think about is uh, patients with coagulopathies or on anticoagulation because these patients aren't going to exactly clot themselves off. And so in these patients, I would also kind of consider a little bit earlier that they may require either, if not just reversal of their anticoagulation, but they may also require some blood products a little bit earlier on. All right. So, so just to review there, some of the factors we need to take into consideration when deciding whether or not to give a blood transfusion, it's not just the absolute hemoglobin level, but the trending of that hemoglobin level. Things like presyncope, if 
like you said, if they stand up and they feel really dizzy. So those sort of clinical factors and the oh so important comorbidities that we've mentioned, things like coronary disease, that's going to change your threshold. Um, and then certainly liver disease. And if patients have a coagulopathy, if they're taking any kind of blood thinners or combination uh, antiplatelet agents like this guy, uh, you're going to be a lot more uh, likely to start your transfusion early because those those medications are going to take time to wear off and the bleeding's unlikely to stop uh, before definitive management. Anton, can I add two more things to that list that I think oftentimes get forgotten? How brisk is the bleed? I think is important because people who are just bleeding out bright red blood, I mean, I think you should have a low threshold for that. And then the second thing is volume, volume of blood loss. Um, so we, we do this in trauma all the time. We try and guesstimate, you know, what volume they've lost. And I think we forget to oftentimes ask and people don't do a very good job estimating that. But those two things should be added to that list as well. How brisk the bleed is and the volume of blood loss. Let's talk a little bit about NG tubes. You know, traditionally, it's been recommended that nasogastric tubes be placed in all GI bleeders for a variety of reasons. So they say that NG tubes can be used to help triage patients to urgent versus routine endoscopy, that the presence of a coffee ground appearance or blood in the NG effluent is thought to be an independent predictor of active bleeding and is also thought to help predict mortality. And there's also the notion that aspirating stomach contents can help facilitate endotracheal intubation as well as upper endoscopy. So with all these kind of things that we've been taught about uh, how great NG tubes are, Dr. Swaminathan, do you think we should be routinely placing NG tubes in all GI bleeders or should we be more selective about who we place an NG tube in? Oh, well, such a nicely loaded question, Anton. Of course, we should be more selective. We don't do the same thing for every patient who comes in, but that was the routine for a long time. I think when we talk about NG tubes, we need to split this into the therapeutic indications for NG tube and the diagnostic indications for NG tube. So let's talk about therapeutic first. That's what we really care about a little bit more. Now, again, like you said, we're talking about emptying the stomach out of blood or contents, and that's really beneficial if I'm going to be intubating the patient, and the GI docs think that it's very beneficial for them when they're scoping the patient. So if I have a patient who's really sick, who initially I am already moving towards doing a rapid sequence intubation, I would drop the NG tube to empty that stomach out, which is going to make my intubation easier. As soon as I relax them, as soon as I lay them flat, if you intubate flat, these patients are going to regurgitate and you're going to have a ton of blood in your field, which is going to make it more difficult to do your procedure. Now let's go from there to the diagnostic indications. And this is much different. This is where I think we have a lot more issues with the idea of NG tubes on everybody. The theory, again, like you said, is that if I drop the NG tube and I get blood, I can easily differentiate upper from lower. But we do have literature to guide us to say that it's just not that simple. There's a nice article by Wittig and colleagues. They published back in 2004 showing that the positive likelihood ratio was 11 for detecting an upper GI bleed if the NG aspirate was bloody. But here's the problem. The negative likelihood ratio wasn't that good. It was 0.6. So if you get a positive aspirate, that's a pretty good indication that you have an upper GI bleed. But a negative aspirate can be misleading. It can 
tell you or you can think, oh, they don't have an upper GI bleed. I got a negative aspirate. The problem is that we often don't get that NG tube into the appropriate location. It sits in the stomach, but it doesn't get down into the duodenum. We know a lot of these patients have bleeding from things like duodenal ulcers. It also doesn't account for the fact that some patients have intermittent bleeding. If you happen to catch them at a point where they are not actively bleeding, you might have a negative aspirate. And again, there's good information that's been repeated multiple times, and it's in the GI literature showing that sometimes you drop it, you aspirate, there's nothing there, but then when you scope them, they have a high-risk bleed. So we have to take all these things into account. The patient who said, oh yeah, I had an episode of hematemesis yesterday, and they look pretty good in front of you, they probably don't have an active bleed, and an NG tube that's placed and aspirated, it might just be misleading. It might tell you, not tell you what's actually going on. Now, the other therapeutic indication, Anton, was for helping our GI colleagues, right? I drop that NG tube, suck out all the contents. It's going to make it easier for them to do their endoscopy. There's some GI literature that shows that eh, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. They do have a suction port on their scope. They can suck stuff out of the way. It's a little bit smaller than your NG tube, but if the patient has big clots sitting in their stomach, which is pretty uncommon, you know, the NG tube's not going to suck those out either. So what can help in those patients is actually to give something like erythromycin IV, which helps with stomach emptying. I often will give these patients a dose of some kind of an antiemetic, something like metoclopramide, not the ondansetron. The metoclopramide is what I want because that helps with GI motility. So that might help to empty the stomach out. Of course, anything that I can do to stop nausea and vomiting is going to be beneficial as well. So I often will give something like uh, metoclopramide or Reglan. I will give erythromycin in advance of my GI colleagues coming in. But I'll tell you that if I have a sick GI bleeder, maybe I've intubated him, maybe I haven't, and the GI doc's on the phone and goes, can you drop an NG tube to make my endoscopy a little bit easier? I'm not fighting them. All I want is for them to get into the emergency department as quickly as possible. And if an NG tube is what's going to make that a little bit faster, I have no problem dropping that. To me, I think overall, in your really sick patients, I think there's very little downside to dropping an NG tube. In the not-so-sick patients, the downsides are there's pain to the patient. There is a small but significant complication rate of the procedure itself. And even though the, the evidence is mixed, the benefits of emptying the stomach to reduce the risk of chemical pneumonitis, you know, to getting a better, although not perfect, idea of how bad the bleed is, maybe even helping in the decision whether it's an upper or lower GI bleed if it's not obvious clinically. I guess that all being said, you know, NG tubes certainly shouldn't be placed routinely in every GI bleeder. That's something we need to think about a bit more carefully. I agree with most of what you guys said. I, I think in the sick patient, the patient who's intubated, the patient with the brisk bleed, I don't see any problems with dropping an NG tube uh, for therapeutic benefits uh, to help facilitate endoscopy for whatever procedure they need to perform. I'm having a hard time thinking of a not sick patient that I would use an NG tube in. And I know this is a little bit divergent from what you were saying, Anton, because there is evidence to help us support using things like um, Reglan and erythromycin to help our endoscopists facilitate their therapeutic interventions. And as you said, NG tubes, I don't know if you've ever had one placed, they hurt. They are painful. There have been reviews done um, in the past that have asked patients of the most common procedures we do in the ER, what are some of the most painful ones? And one of the top ones is NG tube. And as we've stated, 
there's really no mortality benefit. There's no re-bleeding benefit. There's, there's really no benefit from putting it there. It's definitely very mixed literature in terms of diagnosis. But I think in the sick patient, I think we all are saying the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. For therapeutic benefits and for the, making it easier for the uh, GI doctor to see, drop it down. In the not sick patient, though, I don't know that there's – I can't remember the last time I dropped an NG tube down in a not sick upper GI bleed. All right. So I guess suffice to say then uh, that for the really sick patient, we're all in agreement that you probably should uh, drop an NG tube in most of those patients. For the not so sick patients, it's controversial. It's kind of a judgment call. All right, so let's say we've been successful in our initial resuscitation of this GI bleeder. Uh, we've given a minimal amount of crystalloid just to bridge over to uh, some red cells. He's got a unit of red cells going. His hemodynamics are acceptable. They may still have some ongoing bleeding. You know, I've been in situations where the endoscopist comes down, everything's going great. You're thinking, okay, they're going to they're gonna stop the source of the bleeding. This patient's going to do well. And... 10 minutes later, they still haven't found the bleed. 20 minutes later, they still haven't found the bleed. After half an hour, they, they give up and they say, you know what? I just can't find where this bleeding is coming from. What's your next option? This is one of the worst situations to be in, Anton. You've resuscitated the patient. You got your consultant to agree to come in. They do the scope and then they kind of turn to you and say, sorry, can't do much here. There's nothing for me to do. I can't find anything. I can't stop anything. Even worse is when they find the bleeder, but they tell you, I've already employed all the techniques I have at my disposal and I can't get that thing to stop. So stability, again, is going to become the issue here. If the patient's unstable and you haven't already done it, you might want to consider getting a surgical consult on board because sometimes these patients do need to go to the OR to have the bleeding area removed. I mean, you're basically getting a laparotomy to resect the piece that's bleeding. That's what they used to do before endoscopy was in place. Interventional radiology is another option, but again, there's a delay to getting that done. Very few places have 24-hour interventional radiology in-house, so you might have an hour delay while that interventionalist comes in, the team arrives. And if the patient's unstable, the IR suite is not a good place to go. It's just like going to CT scan with the unstable trauma patient, going to MRI with well, any patient in the emergency department or to the GI suite. So interventional radiology is a great choice in the patient who's pretty stable because that's okay. But if they're unstable, not a good place to try a resuscitation. Now, if the patient is stable, you can also consider getting a CT angiogram, which might help to localize and figure out where that bleeding is coming from. And then maybe the patient can go to the ICU, continue to be resuscitated while they come up with some other options. But in general, Anton, I'm thinking if the endoscopist came to the emergency department to scope, the patient's probably unstable or pseudo-stable at best. And then I'm going to want a surgeon on board to consider our surgical options for taking care of this. All right. So just to review there, if you got your stable patient and endoscopies failed for whatever reason, basically the two options are to get them to a CT angiogram to help locate the source of bleeding and or interventional radiology. Uh, if the patient's unstable, then get your surgeon on the phone. That patient might need to go to the OR. So let's say despite all your great resuscitation maneuvers and all the great management that you've done for this patient, 
let's say the nurse calls you overhead to the resuscitation room and your patient now has a blood pressure of 90, a heart rate of 140, and is actively bleeding out of the rectum, even worse. Um, so now this patient's basically exsanguinating. You're giving red cells for sure. You know, before we dive into what actions we're going to take exactly, what are, what are the goals of resuscitation going to be? Um, do you have a, a target blood pressure? Do you have a target lactate? Do you have a target hemoglobin? Uh, what exactly are we going for when we do resuscitate the patient? What are our goals of resuscitation? You know, Anton, this is really tricky because, again, we don't have good studies to guide us. We have a lot of expert opinion. We have a lot of our own experiences. And again, we end up treating these patients when they're really unstable like this, almost like a trauma patient. And we guide our resuscitation based on what we know from trauma. And let's be honest, it's not like the trauma literature is exactly robust either. So a lot of this is our expert opinion. We're usually going to shoot to maintain a hemoglobin over 7 or 70 grams per liter for the Canadians and everybody else who's not an American. We are going to give them the blood cells, but like you said, we're also going to be giving them factors. We're going to be giving them FFP. We're going to be giving them platelets. We're going to do that one-to-one-to-one or one-to-one-to-two resuscitation. We're going to be trying to reverse any anticoagulation or any coagulopathy that has popped up on our blood test. Although, again, we don't know if reversing that coagulopathy makes a huge difference. Obviously, if they're on something like Coumadin, then reversing their INR makes sense. If they're not, but they just have an elevated INR, we don't know if that helps the patient, but we usually are going to treat it and try to reverse it. We're going to be looking at that fibrinogen levels, like Salim mentioned earlier. And if the fibrinogen is low, that's going to be an indication to us that we might need to give that patient cryoprecipitate, which contains that fibrinogen. Another one of the markers that we want to look at that sometimes gets overlooked is the calcium. If the calcium is low, and I'm talking about the ionized calcium, we should give them calcium. As we give more and more blood products, calcium gets kind of taken up, and so we need to replete that. Without that calcium, they can't get that good cardiac output that we'd like to see. For the resuscitation numbers, after I've started resuscitation, I'm going to be looking at the lactate. A lactate that's low is going to be a good indicator that the patient is going to improve. A base deficit is another something to look at. We want to keep them not hypothermic because that's going to make them more coagulopathic. So in these patients, it's going to be tough, but you want to get some kind of a continuous uh, temperature monitoring going on. I say it's tough because most of us use rectal probes for this. And if they're pouring blood out their rectum, you're probably not going to be able to get a probe to sit in place. So an esophageal probe is going to be at play here. If you have a little bit of a thermometer on the end of your Foley catheter, that can be useful too. As far as the goals though, Anton, and that's really the key because we're not going to be waiting for all these blood tests to come back to tell us we're doing a good job on our resuscitation. I'm looking for end organ perfusion. How's their mental status? Are they making urine? These are things that can help us. What's their skin feel like? Is their skin warm and perfused or is it cold and clamped down? And again, when these patients become unstable, I'm not necessarily rushing to intubate, but intubation is high up on my list of things that are going to need to happen. I'm going to resuscitate aggressively first, try to get them to a more stable place before I do that intubation, but I'm almost definitely going to be taking the airway because these patients become altered, they start vomiting, and now I have another issue to take care of. I think it's really important because a lot of your goals of resuscitation are beyond the initial hour or so are going to be based on your blood physiology. You know, hopefully these patients are out of your emergency department in a couple of hours. But Dr. Rose, like you were saying before, sometimes there's patients that are stuck in the emergency department for 24 or 48 hours. And it's really our responsibility to make sure that they've got uh, ongoing uh, monitoring. And that means we need to be ordering 
frequent blood tests for the the sick patients. And like you said, some of the things we need to be aiming for are a hemoglobin uh, greater than 70, platelets greater than 50, an INR less than 1.5 or 2, calcium, you got to be monitoring that and you want it to be greater than 2. You want to make sure the lactate is pretty much back to normal, less than 2, the base deficit, and you want to monitor temperature. Hopefully all this would be happening up in your ICU, but sometimes uh, we are stuck with these patients. And when we are stuck with these patients, that's sometimes when things go really sour because we're busy with other things. These are just some things to be aware of. And even if they are going up to the ICU, it's important to initiate that blood work at least um, and repeated blood work to help out our ICU colleagues. We've got this patient now who's really, really unstable. We haven't talked about tranexamic acid yet. Dr. Rizé, in this patient who's uh, now even sicker than before, uh, would you give him uh, tranexamic acid? So I think Swami made a, a great statement very, very early on in this podcast. And he said, if you have somebody who's really sick and you're not sure if it's an upper or lower GI bleed, treat them like an upper GI bleed. And I'll tell you why I'm saying that that's such a great statement. Because when you sit down and look at the evidence for this, Anton, there have been some systematic reviews on this. And when you look at that evidence and you look at the randomized clinical trials that were included, we have some moderate evidence for improved mortality with upper GI bleeds, but we really don't have any evidence in lower GI bleeds. To be clear, we also don't have evidence that it causes more harm in lower GI bleeds. We just don't have evidence that it's helpful in mortality for lower GI bleeds. So in this patient who's actively hemorrhaging, if I don't know if this is upper or lower, yes, I I would consider giving them tranexamic acid. I agree with Salim. I don't think that the literature can really guide us here. It's hard to get these studies done. It's hard to do randomized control trials in the sickest subset of patients. I'm probably going to give it. Part of the reason why it may not show a benefit or it may not in actuality be beneficial is because if we look at the trauma literature on TXA, it tells us that if it's given under three hours, great, thumbs up, it works. After three hours, you might actually incur more harm from this. And with GI bleeds, we don't really know when it started. Even if the patient says, I threw up blood 30 minutes ago, they might have been having a slow bleed for a while. So I don't know if that's why tranexamic acid hasn't been shown to have a robust benefit in these patients, but it might be why. Maybe these patients aren't within that three-hour window. I don't even know if that three-hour window is relevant. But when the patient is actively trying to die in front of me from bleeding, I'm probably going to give them TXA. All right. So then to, to sum up the evidence for TXA in GI bleed... Um, like you said, there's moderate evidence based on eight RCTs for improved mortality rate with upper GI bleed, uh, but lower GI bleed, we really don't know. You know, I guess for lower GI bleed, it's it's a judgment call, but considering that TXA has pretty little downside, it should probably be given in the really unstable lower GI bleeder, you know, assuming that they just haven't had a PE or some other major thromboembolic event that would put them at higher risk for for giving them a thromboembolic event with your with your TXA. I'm transferring that patient to you, Anton, if they had a recent PE, by the way.
All right, let's review what we've learned so far about GI bleeds and lower GI bleeds in particular. So get set for historical pearls, how to distinguish upper from lower GI bleeds, initial test to order, goals of resuscitation, when to use NG tubes, when to order a CTA, fluid considerations, and finally, factors to consider when ordering red cell transfusions. So first, the history. On history, besides asking specifics about the bleeding, being sure to ask about over-the-counter meds and any clues to the underlying cause, don't forget to ask about comorbidities. That's key. Comorbidities are important because they are often the most important contributors to prognosis in GI bleed. Ask about coronary artery disease, CHF, pulmonary, renal, and liver disease, because any of these comorbidities will increase the risk of a poor outcome and may influence your management decisions. Next is how to distinguish between an upper GI bleed and a lower GI bleed when it's not obvious. Well, first off, if the patient is really sick, just assume that it's an upper GI bleed. If the patient isn't that sick, if there's hematemesis, it's almost always an upper GI bleed. And if there's bright red blood per rectum with clots, then it's almost always a lower GI bleed. Remember that a brisk upper GI bleed can present with hematochesia, and occasionally a lower GI bleed can present with melina. So if the patient's not sick and doesn't have hematemesis or bright red blood per rectum with clots, next, look at the BUN and creatinine ratio. If the BUN to creatinine ratio is more than 30 to 1, then it's much more likely to be an upper GI bleed, especially if the patient is under 50 years old. What about initial tests in the sick GI bleeder besides the usual CBC and chem strip? Well, you should include a cross and type because they may need a blood transfusion and you don't want to be catching up with that. Liver enzymes, INRPTT, and don't forget the blood tests that'll help you with the goals of resuscitation. That's fibrinogen, calcium, lactate, and base deficit. Now, what about fecal occult blood testing? How accurate is it? Well, overall, the accuracy is only about 73%, with a pretty good specificity, but poor sensitivity. So if your FOB is negative, your patient could certainly still have a significant GI bleed. And don't forget that there's lots of false positives and negatives. And there's lots of foods, there's iron pills, Pepto-Bismol, that can make the stools look like Molina. Now, the most common cause of a lower GI bleed is diverticulosis, and the one cause that we should always keep in the back of our minds is ischemic colitis, because those are the patients that need CT imaging, and the treatment is very different than, say, for a bleeding hemorrhoid. Now, on to resuscitation. For the really sick patient, give only enough fluid, like Ringer's lactate, for example, to maintain a map of about 60 to 65 and get clinical signs of end-organ perfusion. And use fluids only as a bridge to giving blood. Remember, they're bleeding out blood. You want to replace them with blood. Now, the decision of when to order a red cell transfusion is tricky, and the evidence is not that great for lower GI bleeds. The decision needs to take into account a whole bunch of factors, like the patient's hemodynamics, how brisk the bleed is, the volume of blood loss, when the bleed started, because if it just started 30 minutes ago, the hemoglobin will likely not have dropped yet. And you don't only want to look at the absolute hemoglobin. Um, you know, usually a cutoff of 70 is a general guide of when to transfuse. 
But a sense of which way the hemoglobin is trending is important as well. Also, if the patient has a coagulopathy or is on anticoagulants or antiplatelets, uh, like this gentleman was, uh, that might sway you whether you're going to be transfusing or not. You have to ask yourself, do they have orthostatic symptoms? Do they have coronary artery disease? Because you're going to lower your threshold for transfusion in that case. And you also need to anticipate how soon you can stop the bleeding. Like, how soon can you get your endoscopist in? Now, what about NG tubes? The literature is all over the place when it comes to the diagnostic and therapeutic value of placing an NG tube. A reasonable approach is to strongly consider placing one in your hemodynamically unstable patients and those that require urgent endoscopy. For the rest, it's a judgment call. On the one hand, NG tubes are painful and have a small but significant complication rate. But on the other hand, they may give you a better idea of how bad the bleed is. They may give you an idea of whether it's an upper or lower GI bleed if it's not obvious. And they may possibly reduce the risk of a chemical pneumonitis, although again, the evidence is not so clear. Now, the last point in your review is what to do if the endoscopist comes down and can't find or stop the bleeding. Well, if the patient's stable, then consider interventional radiology and or a CT angiogram. And if the patient is unstable, then call your surgeon. That patient needs to go to the OR. Next, we're going to discuss upper GI bleeds. All right, on to case number two. You get a call overhead to the resuscitation room for a 42-year-old man with massive hematemesis. According to EMS, he's well known to them with a history of alcoholism and chronic hepatitis C and has not only had hematemesis for four days, but also hematochesia. As you enter the resuscitation room, you see an alert but very pale man who looks more like 60 years old with a heart rate of 140 and a blood pressure of 85 on 40. A quick look at his belly reveals significant distension and obvious caput medusa. So, Dr. Swaminathan, what kind of things are going through your mind when you're faced with an alcoholic upper GI bleeder as opposed to the first case of the lower GI bleeder from a non-alcohol-related cause? So, Anton, we all expressed our concern with that first patient, that we were nervous, that we were anxious about taking care of him. That pales in comparison to how we feel about this patient. We've all taken care of these patients. They decompensate rapidly. And when they decompensate, it's hard to get them back. Now, this guy's already decompensated. He's already in shock. So this is something that it doesn't make me anxious. It makes me lose sphincter tone. And, and that's how we should feel about this. We should feel that we've got to move quickly to take care of them. And we're going to talk a lot about nitty-gritty issues and what kind of meds and what the evidence is behind it. But let me tell you something that a much smarter emergency doc taught me. An upper GI bleed is like a stab wound to the belly. They're bleeding. I can't see the bleeding, but I know it's bad and it's going to get worse. We've got to think fast and move faster if we're going to get that patient taken care of. And number one for this patient, I'm worried about a variceal bleed, and that's what it is until proven otherwise. Yes, PUD or peptic ulcer disease is the most common cause of upper GI bleed, not in this patient. In this patient, it's a variceal bleed, it's a variceal bleed, it's a variceal bleed, and then a little bit further down, there are some other things to think about. But most likely, that's what the alcoholic patient has. 
Peptic ulcer disease is much more common in the non-alcoholic patient. And overall, we're talking about 67, 70% of upper GI bleeds are from PUD, just not in the alcoholic patient. The other thing to think about is that if the patient has a history of aortic disease, and sometimes you don't get that outright, you have to kind of tease that out. If they've got a big abdominal scar that looks kind of recent, that might tip you off, but sometimes you don't get that either. But if they've got a history of aortic disease, you got to worry about the aortic enteric fistula. These patients bleed extremely quickly and die fast. So usually you don't get that four-day history of hematemesis. Usually it's like, I hematemesized this morning, and now they're trying to die in front of you. In those cases, you need a vascular surgeon, you need a general surgeon, you need some kind of a surgeon at the bedside quickly to determine whether that patient is stable enough and can go to the OR. If you don't make that happen fast, these patients will crash and die in front of you before they get any kind of treatment done. All right, so we're driving home the point here that variceal bleeds are really bad bleeds that you've got to assume that any alcoholic has a variceal bleed. What is it exactly about variceal bleeds that make you so worried? So these are high-pressure systems, right? The portal circulation is causing a lot of pressure on those varices, so they tend to bleed, and they bleed rapidly. You obviously can't get direct control on this. You can't put a finger on it to stop the bleeding. And these patients with liver disease are coagulopathic. They're either coagulopathic and bleeding like stink, or they're coagulopathic, and they're going to bleed like stink. We know that's going to happen. This makes our transfusion process, our control of bleeding, so much more difficult. And then let's not forget about the fact that this guy is a chronic alcoholic, which means that he also has poor underlying health. So his baseline best health is not very good. You take a patient who's already sick to begin with, and then you add a serious event on top of that, these patients are going to die quickly unless we move quickly. We're going to want to activate our massive transfusion, intubate the person early to protect and control the airway, and you should still, of course, be resuscitating before that intubation if possible. We talked about that NG tube placement. This is a great place to consider putting that down, sucking out the stomach before we do our intervention. And endoscopy is going to be central here. Our interventionalists, our GI docs, they have a lot of things they can offer to these patients. But also remember that interventional radiology can help as well. An emergent TIPS procedure, that transjugular intrahepatic portal shunt, that can help. That can stabilize the patient temporarily while we move to more invasive treatments. And then again, the general surgeon. The general surgeon's your friend here. Before endoscopy, before TIPS, the procedure that saved these patients' lives were going to the operating room and having a partial gastrectomy and sometimes getting the esophagus removed as well. So get your general surgeon on board early because you may need them as well. So these patients aren't only coagulopathic. Oftentimes, they're also thrombocytopenic. And I think people forget that. Now, this patient will very likely need to be intubated to protect his airway and get scoped safely. Let's talk about airway more specifically, because these can be really tricky with all the blood and possible emesis. So when it comes to airway, what alterations to your usual airway algorithm are you going to consider in the massive upper GI bleed patient? Am I not allowed to call anesthesia for this? Absolutely can not. I, can I, no lifeline? I, this is all on me. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, so yeah, I think there are several modifications that should be considered here. You know, I was trained in the day of direct laryngoscopy and somewhere along the way in my residency, video laryngoscopy came, came along. And I think this is why it's so important to train in multiple modalities in airway management. 
in this particular patient who's actively vomiting blood, I would probably prefer direct laryngoscopy over video laryngoscopy. And the reason for that is with video laryngoscopy, you're at the mercy of what the camera can see. If you get blood that splatters up on it, you're blind. And these patients I would also consider, we talked about the sick versus not sick, but this guy's sick, NG tube. So you want to empty that stomach before intubation. And literature says, says it's safe, but there's really no good evidence of benefit, but it just seems to make sense. I would consider giving some prokinetic agents such as uh, Reglan and erythromycin to help try and facilitate emptying of that stomach from below. And patients who are hypotensive, these patients are basically in shock. And so in these patients, this is where you want to really go with the the low-dose sedative and high-dose paralytic. And my agent of choice would probably be ketamine because you get the nice side effects of the sympathetic surge, so they get a little more cardiac output. You kind of get an increase in their blood pressure. Now, that's not going to happen in every case, but I would consider dropping my dose by about 50%. Don't skip the paralytic because you don't want these people vomiting. If they haven't already, you don't want them to start vomiting on you. In terms of airway management, I think we all agree on pre-oxygenation and apneic oxygenation. The only modification I would make here, and because it's a high-stress situation, what you'll see is people put these bag valve masks on and they'll start bagging these patients aggressively. And what you're doing when you do that is you're insulating their stomach. You are just setting them up to vomit. So I would be very, very careful about how aggressively you're bagging these patients. I would even consider something like apneic CPAP recruitment, um, where I'm not having to bag them. The other thing here is prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. So you want to have double suction set up, maybe a meconium aspirator at the bedside in case you have to get large volumes out from the oropharynx. And if they vomit or aspirate, put them in Trendelenburg position. The other things I would consider also, Anton, is... uh, We've been seeing a lot of literature about this in the, in the foam uh, world, but salad, and for people who are not familiar with that, is suction-assisted laryngoscopy, airway decontamination. I didn't come up with that mnemonic, but, and then push-dose pressors is the final thing. Remember, push-dose pressors aren't going to fix the problem, but they buy you some time. Those are probably the, the most important modifications I would make. All right, got it. So uh, just to review there, some of the airway considerations and massive upper GI bleed. First, avoid aggressive bagging because that's just asking for vomit, which is always a disaster in the airway. As always, we should resuscitate before we intubate. Consider placing an NG tube before intubating. Um, Consider giving Raglan or a metoclopramide to lower that lower esophageal sphincter tone. But be sure to give a full dose of uh, your paralytic, um, again, to avoid uh, that vomit in the airway. And be ready with a double suction setup. Uh, and if you have a meconium aspirator, that can really help to uh, clear up the airway. Um, if the patient does vomit, like you said, put them in Trendelenburg. Uh, so again, you're not getting vomit into the airway. And have a push-dose presser ready in case the BP does tank after you intubate. Uh, anything to add, Swami? I'm not as opposed to using video laryngoscopy here, but if I'm going with video, it's going to be the video laryngoscope that has a standard geometry blade on it. So that way I can do video laryngoscopy and I can have my friends, my colleagues help with suction so they can look at the video screen and suction to help me out. But if I can't get a good view because of the blood, then I can just switch to a direct laryngoscopic view. 
Right. So I guess it depends on what kind of video laryngoscopy you have. If you have the old school, Absolutely. if you have the old school glide scope, for example, then it's probably best to avoid that because like Dr. Rosé said, that you're basically going to be blinded as soon as there's blood there. But if you have the type of video laryngoscopy that could be converted into a direct, then that's, that's a pretty good option as well. Let's say we've got this guy with an assumed variceal bleed and it's 3 a.m. Saturday morning and there's a delay to endoscopy uh, or a delay to endoscopy for whatever reason. Is there a role for a Blakemore tube to tamponade the bleeding? Uh, you know, you got this really sick guy. I can tell you that from my experience, I've actually never used a Blakemore tube. Dr. Swaminathan, what would you suggest in terms of uh, a crashing variceal patient where there's a delay to endoscopy? So Anton, if the patient is crashing and you can't get the endoscopy done, I think we have a clear indication then to put a Blakemore tube in. Yes, it is a difficult procedure. It's one that we don't do very often. We're not 100% familiar with. The nice thing is that there are some good videos on YouTube that you can look up to learn this procedure. Not exactly the place that you want to be learning it is when the patient comes in crashing. So this is actually something that I have done a couple of times. I still do not feel 100% comfortable with, and I review it on a pretty regular basis of how to place this. The key is knowing where the Blakemore tube exists in your department. I often find that that's one of the biggest obstacles. People don't know where to get a Blakemore tube. So in both of my places that I work, I know where that Blakemore tube is. So that is one of the big things here. If there's a delay, if the patient's unstable, you're going to want to put the Blakemore tube in. If the patient's stable, then I'm not rushing for the Blakemore tube. So when I talk about stable, these are all relative terms. If the patient's not actively hematemesizing in front of me, if they're not actively with a blood pressure of 80 over 40 and tachycardic to 140, then I'm going to wait. I'm going to hold off on putting that Blakemore tube down. It's often a Hail Mary. That's the honest truth. When you have patients who are truly crashing and you're thinking about putting a Blakemore tube in, you're talking about a patient who is actively trying to die. You've got to control the airway on these patients. I think we've already talked about that uh, quite a bit, but you're not going to be able to drop a Blakemore tube until you control that airway. And then the process of putting one in, it's a little bit beyond what we want to talk here, but Anton, maybe we can put some good links in the show notes to some videos on how to do this. So uh, bottom line here is, if the patient is crashing and endoscopy is not actively going on, it's not right in front of you, yes, you want to reach for the Blakemore. So know where it is, know how to do the procedure. Let's go back to transfusion. So we talked about transfusing the lower GI bleeder in our first case. What about transfusing the upper GI bleeder? You know, here we have some more literature to guide us. We talked about the big New England Journal of Medicine study that talked about the cutoff of 70. Walter Himmel talked about it in our episode on evidence-based medicine and in our transfusion and bleeding episode. Can you just review for us what the literature says about red cell transfusion thresholds uh, for upper GI bleeds and what we really need to be aware of when it comes to especially that New England Journal study? Yeah, so the New England Journal study you're talking about, Anton, looked at a restrictive transfusion strategy versus a liberal transfusion strategy. Basically, patients were randomized into the two groups, and the cutoffs they used were 7 grams per deciliter for those of us in the U.S., and then less than 70 for everybody else in the rest of the world, and then less than 9 grams per deciliter or less than 90. 
And basically what they found was that mortality in the restrictive transfusion group was about 5%, whereas in the liberal transfusion group, it was almost doubled. And then also to mention that adverse events in the liberally transfused group were significantly higher than those in the restrictive group. Now, a couple of caveats to this study were that all these patients had access to endoscopy or gastroscopy within six hours, which a lot of us don't have always. And the second thing is, is that patients who just looked unwell, so short of breath, symptomatic, hemodynamically unstable, they received blood regardless of what the hemoglobin number was. And again, we've stated this before in the podcast, sometimes it's not the number, it's the way the patient in front of you looks. Absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, this study was um, a bit misinterpreted by some people to think that, you know, pretty much everyone with a GI bleed doesn't need a transfusion unless their hemoglobin is less than 70. I think the key here is to know those exclusion criteria really well, that when you have an unstable patient, they do not need a restrictive transfusion protocol. Those patients need blood, just like we were saying in, in the first case. We can take this higher, higher. We're going to break from the regular podcast for a few minutes, and I'm so excited to have Back on the podcast, Dr. Jeannie Callum, who's a hematologist and transfusion expert, actually a world-renowned transfusion expert, who was on uh, our IV Iron podcast as well as our anticoagulants and bleeding podcast way back when. Dr. Callum, it's great to have you back. We're going to talk about massive transfusions and TXA, really sick patients with GI bleeds. Welcome back. Great. I'm so happy to be back. I love your podcast. I like being here to do them and I love listening to them. Awesome. So Dr. Callum, let's talk massive transfusion protocols for GI bleed. My understanding is that the majority of GI bleeders will only require red cell transfusions without platelets and FFP. But before we get into the indications for massive transfusion protocols, first we need to understand a little bit about how the GI bleeder is different to other patients who are bleeding, for example, the trauma patient. So can you just give us a quick rundown of how is GI bleeding different than the patient who's bleeding from trauma, for example? This is the super short answer about a very complex pathophysiology, but essentially when you get into an injury and you become hypotensive, sends your epinephrine through the roof, it causes the lining of your blood vessels called the glycocalyx to shed. And that uh, is a good thing. It gives you a liter bolus of fluid. So there's a good thing on one side. But the second thing that it does is it gives you a bolus of heparin from that glycocalyx, as well as it triggers release of TPA. And TPA does two things. If a clot has formed, it breaks it down. And it also cleaves up all of your fibrinogen. So it basically defibrinates you, similar to a snake bite. So that's the trauma-related coagulation disorder. In contrast, patients with liver disease, all of their clotting factors are just gradually dropping so that not just their clotting factors, but also their anti-clotting factors like protein C. So that when you have a patient who has an INR of three, they actually have normal thromba generation. It's still preserved. They're not at increased risk of bleeding, even though we look at that number and we think, oh, they must be at risk of bleeding. In clinical studies, high INRs in patients with liver disease has never been shown to correlate with bleeding risk for a procedure at the time of a surgical procedure or a bedside procedure. So we need wow, to so, interpret those numbers differently. So let me just clarify that. So the patient who's on warfarin 
is very different than the liver patient in terms of if you see if they both have an INR of three, the one with warfarin is much more likely to be bleeding to death than the patient with liver disease. Oh, yeah. You have to manage those patients in a completely different way. And so that's a really important concept. When you have an INR of three, you need to know why the INR is three. Because if it's liver disease, okay, we don't have to worry so much about that INR. But if it's warfarin, some other anticoagulant, vitamin K deficiency, oh, that patient might bleed. We're going to get on to how you treat a liver patient different than a non-liver patient when it comes to GI bleed. But getting back to the difference between, say, the trauma patient and the GI bleeder, how is that going to change how you approach uh, massive transfusion? Yeah, so a patient um, that's a trauma patient who has this hyperfibrinolysis with this released TPA, their management really is transexamic acid, aggressive coagulation support, cryoprecipitate for fibrinogen replacement because it's depleting your fibrinogen. And often they have a low platelet count because you're aggressively transfusing them. So it's a clear many of those patients need a massive transfusion protocol activation. In contrast, because a patient with a GI bleed really doesn't have the same degree of coagulopathy, most of the time, actually 95% of the time, they just need red cells. And so the vast majority of times you're faced with a GI bleeder in the eMERGE, you're going to be thinking, okay, most of the time I'm going to manage this. I'm going to call my blood bank. I got a bad GI bleed. I need four units of uncross-matched blood and a cooler, get them to the bedside. So I'm not going to let that patient become profoundly anemic and hypotensive without being able to manage them. I'm going to tell my blood bank, keep four ahead. And as soon as they get cross-matched compatible blood, we'll swap it out and switch over to cross-matched compatible. So put simply then, the trauma patient is going to be depleting all these other factors, and so they're going to need FFP and platelets and all those things, whereas almost all the GI bleeders aren't going to be depleting their factors so quickly, and they can easily handle four units, eight units, without having to go to the other factors. Yeah, and actually, we have pretty good data from that. We have two randomized clinical trials that were done to try and decide what's the right transfusion trigger for red cells. But if you go to all their tables, you see, okay, what percentage of patients actually needed plasma and platelets? And it's about 5%. So the general standard of care management of a GI bleeder is just lots of red cells. If we accept that only about 5% of GI bleeders will need a massive transfusion, then what are the indications for massive transfusion in in a GI bleeder? Yeah, so I think there are situations, particularly with a variceal bleed, where you have a profoundly hypotensive patient that's not responding to red cells, that that's where you're going to start to think, hmm, maybe this patient's going to need such rapid resuscitation that I'm not going to be able to use my laboratory test results, the INR, the PTT, and the fibrinogen to dictate when I transfuse things because I'm transfusing so fast, I can't make transfusion decisions based on laboratory test results. I'll still be sending them, but they're going to be coming half an hour, 45 minutes after I send them. So I'm not going to be able to make decisions in real time based on those numbers. In trauma, we have great scores that predict when you're going to need to activate your massive transfusion protocol, whether that's the ABC score or the traumatic bleeding severity score, the TBSS, to dictate when you activate these things. Outside of trauma, we don't really have those same scores, but the most common score that's recommended is called the shock index, and that's your heart rate divided by your blood pressure. If it's over one, your chance of uh, using five units or greater is pretty high. Once you get to a shock index of 1.4, the mean use of blood is about 11 units. So you can 
basically predict that you're probably going to have to activate your massive hemorrhage protocol uh, when you get above a shock index of at least one. Is there any literature out there to support this very simple idea that if you have a shock index over one and over 1.4, you're almost for sure going to be activating your your massive transfusion protocol? What's the evidence for that? Yeah, so people have done retrospective reviews looking at massively bleeding patients and then looking at how many red cells they got. And really that cutoff of one and then 1.4 predicts that you're going to get into that range of a massive hemorrhage getting more than 10 units of blood. The other thing that I think is really helpful is if you start with those first four units of uncross-matched blood and you see no blood pressure, no heart rate response, that should be another trigger. Okay, I have a really out-of-control bleeding situation where they're not responding to, you know, frontline resuscitation. Okay. I'm just imagining some naysayers arguing that, well, if you're waiting for these things to happen you know, trying four units. And if then they don't respond, then I'll activate the the massive transfusion protocol. Or if I'm waiting for my fibrinogen, if I'm waiting for all the lab tests, then I'll activate my massive transfusion protocol. I'm thinking the naysayers out there might say, well, it takes so long to get the massive transfusion protocol going unless you're in a trauma center uh, that the reason I want to activate it early is because it takes so long. And if you activate it late, then it's too late. Yeah, so I think you have to think about there are some downsides to overactivation. So let's start first about the patient. There have been clear situations where someone's activated a massive hemorrhage protocol in a patient that probably didn't need it. And as a result, because they get such rapid access to red cells and component therapy, they get a whole bunch of blood products they didn't need, resulting in our most common transfusion complication that's serious, transfusion-associated circulatory overload, sometimes profound, sometimes hemoglobin's post-resuscitation well above 150 because it just came too fast. Uh, And nurses now with rapid infusers can pump blood in pretty fast into a patient that you thought was really bleeding, but actually they weren't. And then obviously on the other side, there's the hospital cost to activation. Many of the products that we prepare, when we prepare plasma, we have five days to sell that. And if we don't happen to have a patient coming in, that plasma is going in the garbage. If the platelets come down, they're not properly stored. They come back to the blood bank, they're going in the garbage. So there are harms from overactivation. I think there's another situation where you should be activating your massive hemorrhage protocol And what we use at our hospital is if you're needing more than four red cells per hour, you're transfusing at such a rapid rate that you probably can't use your INR, your PTT, and your fibrinogen in real time to make transfusion decisions. So you should be giving formula-based resuscitation with plasma and platelets. All right. So just to review there, the indications for massive transfusion protocol, one is a shock index more than one, definitely more than 1.4. Two would be after four units of red cells, if they're still in shock. And third is if they're bleeding so fast that they need more than four units an hour, that would be another indication for a massive transfusion protocol. Okay, got it. When that sick GI bleeder comes in, we're not sure right at the beginning whether we're going to be activating the massive transfusion protocol unless their shock index is is through the ceiling. For those docs who don't work in trauma centers, who don't activate massive transfusion protocols often, I just want to review what blood tests are essential to order right up front in case later down the road they're going to need other products. Okay, so we're talking about the severe GI hemorrhage, not the slow diverticular bleed. So in those severe GI hemorrhages, I think all patients at baseline should get a CBC because you need your uh, platelet count, the INR, the PTT, and the fibrinogen. 
I like having the PTT mainly because so many patients are on dabigatran and often they don't give you a clear history. And if the INR is okay and the PTT is through the roof, that might be just one clue. Oh, I need to ask, are you on an anticoagulant? And then I think you need to get the fibrinogen level. Some patients, you know, hold their fibrinogen up nice and high and don't need cryoprecipitate transfusion. Um, but other patients, their fibrinogen is going to drop below 1.5. And if you don't measure, you won't know why they're not stopping bleeding because you're just not giving enough coagulation support. All right, great. So, yeah, that fibrinogen one is something that I don't often think about ordering. So that that's a great pearl there. We had mentioned a little bit about how the liver patient uh, is different than the trauma patient and that an INR of three in a liver patient means a very different thing than an INR of three in, patient, in a patient who's taking warfarin. How does your transfusion algorithm change for a liver patient versus, say, if I started GI bleeding, although I'm not sure how my liver is doing with all the beer that I drink? <laughs> <laughs> so, first of all, there really isn't a lot of literature in liver disease patients to dictate what is the right threshold. So I think a really good message is we don't give any prophylactic plasma in a liver disease patient irrespective of their INR before we do procedures because we know from clinical studies that are retrospective that there appears to be no value in that. Definitely, if the INR is below 1.8, we know that that patient almost certainly has very preserved coagulation and probably shouldn't be getting any plasma. But if the patient is bleeding, the INR is above 1.8. I think at this point in time, given the literature that we have to date, I think it's a reasonable option to give that patient plasma. But we really don't know if they're going to benefit from plasma. Researchers have looked at trying to find a better test because obviously the INR doesn't work. And we've known for decades that the INR is a terrible test for liver disease patients. And so people have started to study using TAG or ROTEM, which are whole blood point of care tests for the coagulation. And so people have randomized people to standard laboratory tests versus TAG prior to some operative procedure and setting cutoffs. And it's clear with TAG, you can really back off on your need for plasma but those studies are pretty early days. Most of the studies are 60 patients, pretty tiny, definitely not ready for standard of care. And, and what about this idea that liver patients are actually hypercoagulable? So yes. This is, this is, I've always found this very confusing. So you've got an alcoholic with liver disease who's bleeding in front of you, and you're thinking about giving them medications that could stop the bleeding but they're actually hypercoagulable at the same time, so you need to worry about inducing a clot. So how, how does that all work? So it kind of makes sense because we know that liver disease patients actually have higher rates of thromboembolic complications. So we should have been suspicious that there was something odd going on there. So they're natural inhibitors of their coagulation cascade, their protein C, their protein S, antithrombin are all dramatically reduced, increasing their risk of thrombosis. And that's why they have normal thrombogeneration generation despite INRs of three. In addition, their clot lysis is super slow. So you and I, if you did our clot lysis test called your euglobulin clot lysis, we'd lyse in about an hour. These patients by three hours have still not lysed. And so they're, they're really much higher risk of thrombosis compared to a normal patient. I mean, I've always assumed that liver patients bleed more because their INRs are up, which according to what we're seeing here is actually not so true. And they actually might be more hypercoagulable than your average patient. That brings up tranexamic acid use 
in patients with GI bleeds. Could you just give us a bit of background first on what the evidence is for using tranexamic acid in GI bleeds, and then whether you'd hold off on the tranexamic acid in a liver patient because they're hypercoagulable? Okay, so we have moderate evidence that TXA is beneficial in patients with liver disease. The most recent Cochrane uh, meta-analysis included eight studies, uh, prospective randomized, and found a reduction in rebleeding and a reduction in mortality with the use of TXA. And prompted by that is a large randomized trial that's undergoing called HALT-IT, run by the same investigators that did CRASH-2, which was the TXA trial and trauma with Ian Roberts. And they're enrolling 8,000 patients with GI bleed to TXA or no TXA, getting a gram followed by a three-gram infusion. Of those 8,000 patients, 7,519 as of this morning have been enrolled. So we should be getting the results of that trial uh, in the next three to six months to know whether or not it's truly beneficial in the GI bleeder. In terms of contraindications to TXA in really all patients, the things that we worry about and we're a little bit more reluctant uh, to use TXA would be patients with prior history of thromboembolic complications, patients um, with a stent that you're worried about thrombosis, um, and patients with hematuria where you're worried that you're going to cause a clot within the urinary tract, which will be causing a post-obstructive renal failure. Whether those are true contraindications, we really don't know, but that's where we get a little bit nervous about use of TXA. In all of the randomized trials, there is absolutely no evidence that TXA causes clots. And TXA works by preventing a clot from breaking down. So you have to have a clot in the first place. So we don't believe it causes clots. Okay, so that makes sense. So TXA is is very safe in the general population who's, who's bleeding. Uh, but while we don't have hard evidence we should think twice about giving TXA in patients who have known thromboembolic problems, if they've had a PE six months ago or uh, if they've had a, a stroke a few months ago. In patients who have a cardiac stent, we have to be careful. And uh, that's a really interesting one about hematuria. So patients with hematuria, the idea there is if you give TXA, you can increase the chances that they form a large enough clot in their GU tract that they're actually going to cause an obstructive uropathy kind of picture. You got it. So putting together everything we've talked about, I understand you've come up with this really nifty mnemonic uh, called the T7. So could you just tell us a little bit about that mnemonic uh, in terms of thinking about transfusions in GI bleeders? Okay, so I think when you're in the middle of a massive hemorrhage protocol, you can't possibly be looking at a checklist you're really in the middle of chaos. So it has to be at the top of your head. So I try to come up with something that people could remember. So the first thing is you need to trigger your massive hemorrhage protocol and with the right activation criteria. By triggering it, you bring together the team. That's the second T. So you've got the right people there. If it's an obstetrical hemorrhage, you've got to bring your obstetrical colleagues, your neonatologist. It's a different team for different types of massive hemorrhage. You need to give TXA. That's critical. That reduces deaths. You need to test at baseline and then hourly to make sure you're keeping up with their coagulation support. You need to transfuse to target. You want to keep uh, that patient's coagulation, platelet count, fibrinogen within your planned target range. You want to keep their temperature at 36 and above. 
every degree below 37 increases blood loss by 20%, transfusion needs by 20%. You essentially can't clot when your body is cold. And lastly, you need to terminate when you do get control of hemostasis so that your blood bank doesn't keep preparing massive amounts of blood. And also so the blood bank can go back to looking after all the other patients within your hospital. Got it. Okay. So T7 is first trigger. Second, get the right team there. Third is testing. And again, don't forget about fibrinogen. And also don't forget to do Q1 hour lab testing so you can follow what's going on. The fourth T is TXA. And in all but the three contraindications that we talked about, you're going to be uh, reaching for TXA, a gram to start. Temperature, make sure the patient's not hypothermic because they won't stop bleeding if they're, if they're cold. The sixth T is transfusing to target. And we had talked earlier in the, in the podcast about the uh, exact numbers to target, and we'll have that in the written summary as well. And then lastly, termination or tag. So Dr. Callum, I've got a million more questions for you, but we don't have enough time. But there is one question that I just want to ask you that's not exactly related to massive transfusion protocols. But for those patients who are on antiplatelet agents, uh, we started off the podcast with a 73-year-old who was on dual antiplatelets for a cardiac stent. You know, knowing that with a cardiac stent, they can't get TXA, but they're also on dual antiplatelet therapy. You think, oh, maybe this patient needs platelets if they're really bleeding out. Can you tell us a little bit about how to manage that GI bleeder who's on antiplatelet therapy and whether platelet transfusions are of any benefit? I'll do my best. But right now we're at that point where we really don't know. So some things in medicine always like make sense. You know, a patient comes in, they're on antiplatelet agents, they're bleeding, give them a platelet transfusion, it all makes sense. And then someone performed two studies. The first one was the PATCH study where patients were randomized to platelets or no platelets when they came in with an intracranial bleed. And it turned out that getting no platelets resulted in the best outcomes for patients. And there was an apparent increase in bleeding as well as an increase in thrombosis in the patients uh, that got the platelet transfusions. And then another study was done in GI bleeders out of Connecticut that took non-thrombocytopenic patients coming in with a GI bleed on antiplatelets and looked at patients that had gotten platelets and not platelets based on whatever their doctor decided. And lo and behold, major cardiovascular events, death, and longer hospital stay was more common in patients that had gotten platelet transfusions. And we're starting to realize that the platelets you get from the blood bank, they're not normal platelets. They're hyperactive um, because they're being stored in in plastic, they're sitting in the blood bank for seven days, and obviously what you're getting isn't really what's coming, you know, what's really being produced by the bone marrow. And so we believe that by giving platelet transfusions, you're probably increasing the patient's risk for thromboembolic complications. So I think you really need to balance when you're making your decisions. You need to understand, yes, you know, does it stop patients from bleeding? Maybe. Does it increase the risk of thrombosis? Maybe. And really have a little bit of thought rather than a more shotgun approach to it, which we generally have on antiplatelets, bleeding, give platelets. All right. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Callum. Your expertise and insights are really, truly incredible. Uh, I hope we can have you back on the podcast for some other hematologic or transfusion related topics soon. Antoine, thanks very much. Always happy to come. I love being on your podcast. 
that just about wraps it up for part one of our two-part podcast on GI Bleed. Part two will be released exactly one week after part one. And in part two, we'll review the evidence for PPIs with an EBM bottom line from Justin Morgenstern. We'll talk octreotide, antibiotics, transfusions, the future of GI bleed management, and a whole lot more with Swami and Salim. Now, a quick announcement before we go. Registration for the EM Cases course on February 3rd, 2018 just opened a few days before the release of this podcast, and we may still have some spots left. If you go to the EM Cases website and click on Courses in the navigation bar, you'll find a link to register. And with the release of these GI Bleed podcasts, we have a brand new rapid review video on Lyme disease to help consolidate what you heard on the EMU Highlights podcast. So until next time, take it easy. 